Today's text is Genesis 32, and bear with me as I read it in its entirety. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, and the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flonk, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he stayed the night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. 
So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to come and, and preach the sermon this morning. Mark, I've told Mark for many, many years, Jacob is, uh, other than the Lord Jesus himself in the New Testament, Jacob is probably my favorite person in the Bible. Um, I just, I love the story of Jacob. I love his life. I love how uh, transformative uh, it is of God's power and patience with somebody for 20 years who strove against God and man, and uh, God did not let him go. God held fast and had a destiny for Jacob, and I just love um, I love what I've learned over the years from this story. Lord willing, we will return to Genesis the first or the second week of January. So beginning next week, Mark will come back and we'll put a pause on Genesis and he'll get into his normal, his annual Christmas themed messages and New Year's message for us. And hopefully on January 11th, I'll come back and do the part two of this because there's a continuation of this story, powerful continuation of the narrative in chapter 33. So to begin with, um, we can't really fully understand what happens here in chapter 32 without going back a little bit connecting the dots because something has held on to Jacob for 20 years um, that he has struggled with that has defined him at every point in his life and it's been uh, a struggle, a constant struggle. And so um, I want to turn to something a little bit to my academic roots to a narrative device. Some of y'all may know about the narrative arc or the three-act play or the three-act story from literature. And it actually fits perfectly within uh, this long passage of nine chapters in Genesis from chapter 35 where we first were introduced to Isaac or to Jacob and Esau all the way through chapter 33. And the life and the transformation of Jacob is one of, as the one sovereignly elected by God to fulfill his covenantal promise to Abraham. So using the narrative arc as a guide this morning, I just want to look briefly sort of where we've come and to set the stage for, um, for where we're going. So here's a picture of it, uh, and it basically, if you've never seen this before, it's basically just a visual of the progression of a story from beginning to middle to end. The first part is called exposition, and that's where we're introduced to the main character or the protagonist, who in this case is Jacob. Uh, setting the background information, and it concludes with this thing called the inciting incident. You guys ever heard of that? The inciting incident. Um, a point of attack revealing the main tension, predicament, or problem facing the protagonist that must be solved. Well, in chapter 25, if we all go all the way back to the beginning, we learned of Rebecca's barrenness and how the Lord granted Jacob's prayer, and she conceived twins, and that the children struggled within her. The Lord in his sovereignty would reverse the birth order, and he would declare uh, to Rachel that the older would serve the younger. And it wasn't because the younger was somehow more innately better, um, was more righteous, was more gifted. Um, that's not the case at all with, with Jacob. Um, it was basically God's sovereign election. He would reverse the birth order for purposes known only to him. Uh, Griffith Thomas says this. He wrote, the order of nature is not necessarily the order of grace. And so we see that here through the book of Genesis and elsewhere, starting with Cain and Abel, right? And in other places in the Bible where the blessing and the divine promises are carried out through uh, the younger, not necessarily through the older. 
We see election in the New Testament spoken of uh, in reference to this text today by Paul, where he wrote in Romans 9, he said, though we were not yet born, uh, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Hold on to that for a minute. They'd done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She, Rachel, was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Kent Hughes wrote this. He said, the moral lessons that are here do not come from observing the moral virtues of Jacob and Esau, but from their faults. Jacob and Esau together dramatized the human predicament. Both the elect and the non-elect are hopelessly self-centered and incapable by themselves of doing consistent good. Jacob is a scheming Machiavellian figure, and Esau is a free spirit who lives for his appetites. Well, not surprisingly, we come back to the middle part of the story, or, or the end of the exposition. Um, Esau and Jacob, they enter the world in conflict. Jacob's holding on to uh, Esau's heel. His name Jacob can be interpreted to actually mean one who grabs the heel, supplanter, someone who seizes, circumvents, usurps, or cheats. The inciting incident is, is, occurs later um, when they're older. With the help from Rachel, he deceives Isaac because Isaac appears to be on his deathbed. They deceive Isaac into robbing Esau of the blessing of, of Isaac, the firstborn child's blessing, and it's stolen from him. Well, Esau hated Jacob for this, and he committed in his heart to kill Jacob once Isaac was dead and the days of mourning had passed. So that moves us to the second act, which is rising action and climax, where we're kind of going to end up here at this point. So that climax, that insightful incident took place early on. And after that, we see the stakes increase during this particular part of the story. Larger underlying problems are revealed. Despair increases as the protagonist realizes they are trapped. They face tough odds for getting out of a bad situation. It may include the introduction of a rival or an antagonist. Okay, enter Laban, right? And new obstacles and challenges along the way, of which there are many. In this middle section of the story, Jacob is sent into exile to Laban for his protection from Esau. He endures Laban's treachery for 20 years. The vast majority of the time is spent in these chapters. And despite continuous mistreatment, he prospers under the hand and the blessings of God. He endures a lasting feud with his two wives and the birthing wars that followed with the birth of 11 children. With a large family comprised of 11 sons, and at the appointed time, God commands Jacob to arise and return to the land of his kindred. Well, doing so puts Jacob between a rock and a hard place. Last week, uh, Mark shared from chapter 31 about Basically, what lies behind Jacob is Laban in hot pursuit of him, intent on doing him harm, most likely as well, if it weren't for the fact that God would intervene there as well. The prospect of that consumed Jacob with fear um, as he began to look forward. He dealt with Jacob. God dealt with Jacob. God's, God did not necessarily soften uh, Laban's heart, but he worked circumstances around to basically create um, a truce and a separation from them um, that would... Um, would no longer threaten him and his family. So now he looks forward to the reunion with his estranged brother, and this prospect, it basically strives fear into Jacob's heart. It's the climax of the story. It shows up in the most remarkable way with an extraordinary display of God at the very moment when Jacob is at the lowest point in his life. So today, I want to move forward. I want to look at three um, main points in the story. The first one is uh, precautionary measures. Second point is Jacob's prayer and peace offering. And the third one is Jacob prevails. So precautionary measures. The first thing we see in chapter one is that God is already one step ahead of Jacob. Jacob arrives to a camping place and there's angels 
a camp of angels 12 to 13 miles from the Jordan River, all right? And he's setting up shop. He says, this is God's camp. It names the place um, Maenaim, and Jacob's first and last recorded encounter, as we know, was 20 years ago where he met angels at the beginning of his journey, right? You remember that? He, he had a dream, and he saw a ladder set up on earth, and at the top of it reached heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and he woke and exclaimed, surely the Lord is in this place. The whole movement into exile, it began with angels, and now his return out of exile back to the land of his father is also greeted with angels. Um, just extraordinary. And if that meant then that God was in this place, it means even more so that he is in this place now. He called that place Bethel, meaning house of God. We see in Psalm 34 that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. We see in Psalm 11, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard him, guard you in all your ways. I was reminded of Elisha's words, his comforting words to uh, his servant uh, when the Syrian army showed up. And, um, and he basically said this. He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. He said, do not be afraid. And, um, and he prayed, and the servant's eyes were opened to see that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Remember that scene? The whole Syrian army is there surrounding Elisha, wanting to capture him, maybe wanting to do even more to kill him. And God all along was working behind the scenes spiritually. And there was a spiritual reality that was hidden from the servant. And by God's amazing grace, uh, Gehazi's eyes were open and he was able to see what he could only see through the revelation of God. In his book, Angels, Billy Graham wrote about John Patton, a missionary who told of how one night hostile natives surrounded his mission headquarters. He and his wife prayed through the entire night. And when daylight finally came, their attackers were gone. A year later, the chief of the tribe became a Christian, and Patton asked the man about that night, and the chief replied, Who were all those men that you had with you there? And the missionary explained that only he and his wife were there. And the chief insisted that he had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments and swords circling the mission headquarters, and the natives were afraid, and they disbanded and didn't attack. So this camp of angels that God has sent um, it sets the stage, right? It tells Jacob, or should tell Jacob, hey, listen, you're not alone. You weren't alone at Bethel. I was with you then. You felt alone, probably the most alone you'd ever felt in your life, with a rock for a pillow, right? And you're not alone now, 20 years later. And there's nothing to fear, and he remains the object of God's relentless grace. Well, as we've seen many times with Jacob, um, you would think that would be enough, right? Okay, I'm going to just stand in faith, trust the Lord, he's going to deliver me. But Jacob is a man of action. He's a man who plans, and, um, and he prepares. And so this is what he does. Jacob, once again, uh, stumbles a little bit in his faith, and he bends back on that old, uh, reliable self, self-reliance that he's relied on so much time before. He's a man of action, never leaves anything to chance. He immediately sends messengers to Esau to curry his favor, he alludes to his enormous wealth, how God has blessed him and sort of setting the, planting the seeds, if you will, for a gift that's going to follow. He's going to um, basically um, use all of his wealth, all of his prosperity to sort of buy forgiveness from Esau, okay? Um, and we kind of know how that will turn out because we've read the end of the story. Well, Jacob, messengers return and they come back with sort of a cryptic message. Um, and Esau, all he hears is that, uh, Jacob, all he hears is that Esau is coming, and there's 400 men with him. 
He connects the dot. He immediately assumes the worst, holding on to the idea that Esau still hates him, that he's coming to kill him and his family. I imagine that this narrative is played over and over and over again in his mind as he's thought many times about what he did to Esau way back when and how things were when they parted and left and never reconciled. And that stayed with him all this time. And for all he knew, that wrath and that anger toward him has never subsided. It makes me wonder why perhaps he didn't think that maybe as the Lord had dealt graciously with him these past 20 years, that just maybe, just maybe, Jacob, God has also dealt graciously with Esau, and he's been working on your behalf for the last 20 years. But that doesn't seem to yet have entered his mind, doesn't seem to yet have entered his thinking. So he, he divides the camp into two camps, no longer thinking about the presence of angels or God's promises of protection. He panics, fearing imminent attack. He divides the camp in two, thinking that, well, if he attacks, one part of the camp will, will get away and the other one um, you know, who knows what will happen to them, but part of the camp might survive an onslaught from Esau. Later on in verse 22, Jacob would arise in the night and take his two wives, his two servants, his 11 children, and he would do a sort of a perilous journey, taking them across a river at night for their own protection as well. Just another step, another action, just in case God doesn't show up and help, I'm going to sort of do everything I can do on my own to make sure that my family and all my camp are well protected. Well, that leads us to point two, and that's Jacob's prayer and peace offering. And this, I think, is where we begin to see something change in Jacob's heart. Something starts to stir, something starts to happen, and I think there's encouragement here that we can all receive. And I've lost my place. Here we go. So the stage is set for the final conflict. Jacob responds with a desperate prayer and a passionate confession to God, followed by the assembly of a gift and a peace offering for Esau. In reality, we know that Jacob has nothing to fear because we've read the end of the story. God has everything under control just as he did all those years before while he was subjected to Laban's devious controls and manipulation. But when trying to convince Leah and Rachel it was time to flee, remember he boldly testified, he said this, he said, God did not permit Laban to harm me. So all along we see little seeds of hope where, where Jacob remembers, okay, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for God's protection. But he doesn't hold on to that. For some reason, it just slips away, and he enters back into that reliance on self, and he moves forward. No matter what Laban had done to him, God was with him, and he prospered, and he was kept safe. So I wonder, why was it so hard for Jacob to trust in God, to know that he was with him here, that he would not permit Esau to harm him? To Jacob's credit, his first response here is to pray. And it's the prayer of a truly fearful and desperate man, evidence, I think, of his spiritual maturity, his humility, his growing dependence on God. Jacob is surely a different man here in chapter 32 than the one who hastily vowed at Bethel. Remember this with his if-then clause vow? He said something to the effect, God, if you, if you protect me, if you feed me, if you clothe me, if you allow me to return to my father in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Remember that? It was a conditional prayer. Basically, just sort of putting God to the test. Or if you do all this for me, then I, I will acknowledge you are the Lord. Still not say you are my God, but I will acknowledge that you are the Lord. And Mark told us to not beat up Jacob too much for that. That was the prayer of an immature believer. He was learning. That was lesson one of, of faith in God. And he had a lot more lessons to come um, that would show up later. So as Mark shared last week, even in his final encounter with Laban as he's preparing to flee, Jacob is still more of a borrower than an owner of his faith, right? 
and, um, and his acknowledgments of God remained rooted in the third person, never once saying, my God. So I believe this prayer is a turning point in Jacob's life, perhaps an indicator of true repentance. He begins with the uh, invocation, okay? Good way to start off. And he acknowledges God. He says, the God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac. And then he goes on to remember God, and he recounts his promise, and he recounts his blessings. He recounts his protection. Uh, Return to your country, the country of your kindred, that I may do you good. He remembers that word that he got um, when it was time to flee, that God would protect him, that God would bring him back. He remembered his deeds. He remembered his steadfast love. He, again, was bringing this before the Lord. Lord, haven't you spoken this to me? It was a great invocation. It was one that was rendered, I think, beginning to show the faith that was deep down in Jacob's heart that was ready to be released and that was ready to be opened up. Then he makes confession, powerful confession of his fear, his lowly estate, his unworthiness. He says, you know, Lord, years ago, I crossed the Jordan with nothing more than my staff, and look at me now. Look at me now. I mean, did you count up the number that was in the company, just of the the animals and the livestock that he was going to give to Esau? Can you imagine how big that gathering was? In that valley, God had prospered Jacob, enormously prospered Jacob, and protected him when all he had was the staff when it all began. There's a degree of humility here that we haven't seen in Jacob prior to this text. And finally, he includes a petition, and he just cries out to God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. Further indication that he hasn't let go of this false narrative. He's been holding on to this. He believes Esau is coming to attack him, his wives, and his children, and he's no longer afraid merely for himself, but for his whole family. James chapter 4 says this, says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, O ye sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And I think that's what we're seeing here in, in Jacob. We're seeing a degree, again, of humility. Finally, him coming to an end of himself and realizing that he would not be anything without the Lord, that the Lord has done all for him and has kept him alive all these years because of his divine um, purposes and because of his love and grace. Well, after the prayer, we don't know, the prayer was offered up to God, and I guess there was no immediate answer because Jacob then goes back into prevent defense mode. He goes into creating a present. He's going to somehow assuage uh, Esau again, and he, he puts together this incredible gift, right? We sang a presence this morning. Jeremy, oh, uh, Jeremy talked about presents this morning, right? So I'm going to give, everybody likes a present, but this is a little bit more than, hey, I had a fight with my brother. I'm going to take him to Smitty's, buy him an ice cream cone and make up, okay? This is like got to be something a little bit more than that, and so he begins to put this present together, and what a present it is by any Uh, standards. It was incredibly lavish. It included 550 animals arranged in groups of goats, sheep, cattle, and donkeys. And then there was the pageantry, um, the ceremonial organization of how this gift would be presented, which is just kind of, again, very typical of Jacob. He doesn't do anything without extreme planning. He thinks he's a master chess player. He thinks many moves ahead. And so he arranges or gives instructions to his servants about how they're to stage and space out the presentation in three groves, all of it carefully orchestrated for optimal effect, right? To appease Esau's wrath and diffuse his anger. And each time the servants were instructed to say, they are a present from my Lord, uh, they are a present for my Lord Esau. Now think about that for a minute. Again, the older was to serve the younger. 
So again, a further indication of his humility referring to his brother as my Lord Esau, right? Coming to his brother with deep respect, deep humility, and probably some evidence of maybe some real regret for what he had done years before. Well, and moreover, he's behind us. Jacob is coming, Esau. So when we resume our study in Genesis in January with part two, we'll read about Esau's unexpected response. So stay tuned for that on January 11th. So that moves us into the last part of the text, Jacob Prevails. Um, I've read this story so many times. It's one of my favorite uh, passages in the Bible, and I've often wondered what it means to to prevail, what exactly is going on in here. Um, you know, we know it's more than a wrestling match, right? But it's there's something going on here that's really uh, unimaginable, I think, to us, but it's also fascinating and amazing at the same time, um, what we see here. So after carrying the family across the Jabbok River, Jacob is left alone on the darkest, what has to be the darkest night of his life. That is until God shows up and the epic wrestling match begins, and it continues all night into the breaking of the day. Not only has Jacob been allowed to see angels, okay, remarkably now he also comes face to face with God and he's actually allowed to touch and interact with God somehow physically, something that only God could permit and God could allow. We would later read from Moses, when Moses would ask God, he would say, please show me your glory. Remember that in Exodus? God would reply and say, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. So it's clear from the text that the one whom Jacob was wrestling was a supernatural being with divine power that can only be attributable to God. And Moses left no doubt saying that Jacob had striven with God and prevailed. So Hosea would write later, he would say that Jacob strove with the angel and he prevailed and he wept and he sought his favor. So again, we know this is not a human physically based wrestling match. This is a spiritual encounter um, with the living God. It is a battleground of intense prayer and emotion as a desperate man is clinging to God for his last hope. Kent Hughes wrote this. He said, Jacob did not see the wrestling match for what it was, a parable for his entire life. Throughout the long narrative, Jacob's life had been characterized as a grasping struggle. Jacob had wrestled with his brother and then with his father and then with his father-in-law and now with God. Jacob had always struggled with both man and and God. I was reminded of Ephesians 6 where Paul writes, he says, um, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, right? Against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, Jacob had spent his entire life up to this point striving against human adversaries in the flesh without fully appreciating or believing in God's sovereignty and faithfulness. Kent Hughes would go on to say, he said, Jacob had no idea that he was in the grip of God's relentless grace. So as daybreak approached, several things happened really, really fast. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, throwing it out of joint and no doubt causing Jacob excruciating pain. And yet Jacob would not let go, even when commanded to do so. A couple of weeks back, you might remember when Mark was talking and teaching on Isaac, he used the phrase divine grit. Y'all remember that? He talked about divine grit. He said, to, he said it's a type of dogged determinism that comes not from self-reliance, but from faith that rests solely or solidly on the promises of God. Isaac discovered the power of divine grit, and now it was Jacob's turn. He is now spiritually and physically a broken man 
with only one thing on his mind, God's blessing. And the last time, if you remember, 20 years ago, that he had asked for a blessing, it was obtained under false pretenses through deceitful actions and to lies spoken to his father, Isaac. So now he's asking again as a changed man, one who's humbled, desperate, fearful, and determined to not let go of God until he receives it. Look again at verse 26 as Jacob pleads. He says, I will not let go unless you bless me. Well, God replies to Jacob with a simple request of his own. He simply asks him, he says, what is your name? Simple question, profoundly deep meaning underneath the the question. The answer came back quickly. Jacob, one word answer. Kent Hughes wrote that within the context of the Bible, to disclose your name could be an act of self-disclosure, a revelation of your character, your deepest identity. There's more than just a name. When Jacob spoke his name out, he was speaking about his true nature and who he was as a person. Well, I teach cinema and film and TV at, at Elon. I'm not like a famous filmmaker or anything, but I love narrative storylines. I love um, to see life brought uh, well uh, in, onto the screen. I love The Chosen and other, uh, other directors who try to capture the essence of real people as they encounter and are transformed by the living God. And, uh, and I can imagine if this scene were ever put into the context of a film, that maybe it, this scene might look something like this, at least if I was directing it. Uh, it might look something like this. Um, I can imagine that the moment would all of a sudden just slow down. Okay, slow motion effects really, really good. Just all of a sudden, Jacob, and it just slows down. Maybe the color tone darkens a little bit. Maybe there's a, a, a rapid flashback sequence, you know, as Jacob ponders and thinks about everything he had ever done to deceive and manipulate outcomes for his own good right? And all of this is going through his head in rapid sequence. And perhaps, um, maybe for the first time, Jacob would realize with God's help how he had been a prisoner in bondage to fear for all these many years. And yet he might reply this. He might say, yes, Lord, my name is Jacob, and I've lived up to my name well. I'm a master manipulator, a deceiver, a cheat a liar, a pretender, a heel grabber. And I've spent my life turning bad situations around in my favor, outmaneuvering and outwitting my adversaries and brilliantly, with brilliantly concocted schemes and plans. And I can imagine Jacob also saying, either out loud or silently, because the Lord can hear our silent thoughts as well, something like this. But Lord, I'm tired, I'm afraid, and I don't want to be that person anymore. We sang it this morning, folks. What an amazing mystery, right? That God's grace could come to me. There's nothing more amazing than what God is about to do. God is going to pronounce something over Jacob that I think is unexpected, but the time has come. The Lord does something truly amazing. He says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and you have prevailed Jacob's new name, I believe, was not given as a reward. It wasn't given because he had finally figured out how to live righteously before God. It wasn't obtained by works. It wouldn't instantly change him or take away every sinful inclination of his heart from from here forward because we know that even down the road, Jacob's going to do what Jacob does still. There's going to be 
ongoing sanctification of Jacob's heart as he walks out his faith with God, right? Just as it is with all of us. I believe it was purely this. It was a gracious acknowledgement by God that Jacob was now ready to take up the mantle of his divine calling as the father of a nation and people that would be a blessing to all mankind. He was ready. And this was God's way of making that declaration over him. So what does it mean that Jacob prevailed? Um, If you go back a couple of chapters to chapter 30, we... Uh, back when Leah was giving birth to four sons, right? And we were in the middle of those birthing wars and Rachel was desperately trying to catch up. She was so desperate, in fact, that she took matters into her own hands, sound familiar, right? And she gave her servant Billah to Jacob as a wife. Well, that union led to the birth of Naphtali and Rachel's boast in Genesis 30, verse 8. Again, think of how similar this is to what we read today. It says, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and prevailed. With mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. And as Mark said last week, Laban's second daughter, Rachel, was skilled in deceit, just like her father. And maybe she had picked up some tips from her husband. Both Rachel and Jacob struggled with self-reliance and a lack of patience and faith to wait on the Lord. To wait on the Lord for the fulfillment of his blessings and promises. And I was reminded this week of David's faith, his extreme patience as he resolved to bring no harm to Saul, even though He knew that he had been chosen by God to succeed him as king, right? But he would not raise his hand to God's anointed over and over again. David would say that, right? Even when he had opportunity to kill Saul, even when his mighty men persuaded him to kill Saul, he refused, right? He wouldn't do it. He would not do anything to to hasten his ascension to the throne. God had promised it. God had said he would do it. But David knew it wasn't in his hand to make it happen sooner. He would wait for God's perfect timing. doesn't mean that David was a perfect person either, right? But in that particular situation, David did good, right? He waited for the Lord to do that work. Rachel boasted that she had wrestled and prevailed against her sister, a familiar boast that Jacob had also likely done many times during his many strivings. But when God declares, when God says, you have prevailed, that's different. In chapter 32, the pronouncement that Jacob has revealed is proclaimed by God himself, and it signifies a tested, proven faith and godly perseverance and not self-reliance. It's the real deal, divine grit at best. John Kelly, I want to ask you guys to come on up and get ready to sing a song for us. Um, I asked John and Kelly um, to sort of end the sermon this morning with a song that I remember from years ago singing that I thought would fit really well with today's message. And I hope you'll listen to it carefully. The words are powerful. And it's a reminder to us that uh, God, our God, is a transformative God. He's a God who changes us. And we don't have to stay or be or live under any false narrative about who we think we are and about what we think. Because very often the narratives that play out in our mind are not accurate. The only narrative I care about is the one that God has his script, his story for my life. And it's often, I'm sure, very different from the reality that is in my own corrupt thinking. Jacob prevailed. He was given a new name. He was given a new identity. He would no longer be called a deceiver and a cheat, but a friend of God, an overcoming one, and one who seeks his face. Saints, we too have been given a new name and identity in Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Listen to these words. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The next verse says, and all of this is from God.
amazing mystery that his grace has come to me. Listen, saints. I will change your name. You shall no longer be Jeff, can you put that final slide back? Thank you. Can you stay for a second? Jeff, can you put that final slide up? Thank you. That song, I, I looked up the origins of the lyrics that inspired the songwriter. It came from Isaiah 62:24. Listen to this. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married for the Lord. For the Lord, saints, he delights in you. Let's pray. Father, there's such good news. Throughout all of Genesis, we know the underlying theme is grace, Lord. It's grace. On every page, there's grace, Father. Uh, Jacob no longer, no more deserves grace than any of us, Lord. Um, and yet he was one of the patriarchs, Lord, chosen by you, set aside by you, Lord God, to do something truly spectacular. But Lord, only because you are an extraordinary God who can take um, the lowliest of us. And Lord, you exalt the humble. You lift up the humble. And Lord, you can make a new creation. 
out of each and every one of us. Father, my prayer for everyone here right now uh, would be for maybe the best Christmas gift of all, Lord God, and that would be uh, to be able to, uh, to finally come to grips with the reality that, Lord, um, we can't go it alone, Lord. We're tired, we're frightened like Jacob. Maybe we've been holding on to a fear for 20 years that kept us in bondage, Father. Maybe it's something else. But I pray that by your grace and your mercy and your power this morning, you would, you would break through, Lord, as you broke through with, with Jacob. You wrestled with him, Lord. You allowed him, Lord God, to become uh, depleted of all of his strength, all of his energy, all of his will, and you brought him to the throne of grace, Lord God, where he had nothing left to do but to cling to you in hope that, Lord, you might bestow upon him a blessing. So, Father, may you bless this congregation, may you bless this people, may you bless us this day. And help us, Lord, to cling to you, to never give up hope, but, Lord, to remember your faithfulness. For, Lord, what an amazing mystery, Lord, that your grace has come to me. Amen. Amen.